This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History podcast. We uh, top and tail this episode with reports from the 2nd of March about the end of Prime Ministers in office. And between those, our longer reports are about the death of Socrates and the death of King George IV. But we start on March the 2nd, 1894, with Mr Gladstone's last speech as Prime Minister, as reported by the Daily Telegraph on that date. Mr Gladstone, on entering the house at half past three and taking his seat on the treasury bench, was received with loud ministerial cheers. During the course of his speech, the Prime Minister said, I do not wish to use hard words, which are easily employed and as easily retorted. Cheers and counter-cheers were heard. It is a game which two can play. The issue which is raised between the deliberative assembly, elected by the votes of more than six million people, and a deliberative assembly occupied by many men of virtue and many men of talent, of course, with considerable diversities and varieties, laughter and cheers off were heard, is a controversy which, when once raised, must go forward to its issue. Loud ministerial cheers. The issue has been postponed in many cases to a considerable degree by that discretion, circumspection and reserve in the use of its enormous privileges which the House of Lords has exercised. But I am afraid, sir, that the age of that reserve and circumspection may have gone by. The House of Commons could not be a final judge in its own case. It is the authority of the nation which must, in the last resort, decide. Well, this next account is written by Plato and is of the death of Socrates in 399 BC. He'd been condemned to death for corruption of the young and neglect of the gods, and he'd remained in prison for a month after sentence until the sacred ship had returned from Delos. During its absence, no execution could take place. Xanthippa was Socrates' wife. He had three sons by her. Plato was not an eyewitness of the death, but was in close touch with those who were. He writes, I will try to tell you everything from the beginning. On the previous days, I and the others had always been in the habit of visiting Socrates. We used to meet at daybreak in the court where the trial took place, for it was near the prison, and every day we used to wait about talking with each other until the prison was opened, for it was not opened early. And when it was opened, we went into Socrates and passed most of the day with him. On that day, we came together earlier. For the day before, when we left the prison in the evening, we heard that the ship had arrived from Delos. So we agreed to come to the usual place as early in the morning as possible. And we came, and the jailer who usually answered the door came out and told us to wait and not go in until he told us. For, he said, the eleven are releasing Socrates from his fetters and giving directions how he is to die today. So after a little delay, he came and told us to go in. We went in then and found Socrates just released from his fetters, and Xanthippa, you know her, with his little sons in her arms, sitting beside him. 
Now when Xanthippa saw us, she cried out and said the kind of thing that women always do say. Oh, Socrates, this is the last time now that your friends will speak to you, or you to them. And Socrates glanced at Crito and said, Crito, let somebody take her home. And some of Crito's people took her away wailing and beating her breast. But Socrates sat up on his couch and bent his leg and rubbed it with his hand, and while he was rubbing it said, what a strange thing, my friends, that seems to be which men call pleasure. How wonderfully it is related to that which seems to be its opposite, pain, in that they will not both come to a man at the same time, and yet if he pursues the one and captures it, he is generally obliged to take the other also, as if the two were joined together in one head. And I think, he said, if Aesop had thought of them, he would have made a fable telling how they were at war, and God wished to reconcile them, and when he could not do that, he fastened their heads together, and for that reason, when one of them comes to anyone, the other follows after. Just so, it seems that in my case, after pain was in my leg on account of the fetter, pleasure appears to have come following after. When he had finished speaking, Crito said, well, Socrates, do you wish to leave any directions with us about your children or anything else, anything we can do to serve you? What well, I always say, Crito, he replied, nothing new. If you take care of yourselves, you will serve me and mine and yourselves, whatever you do, even if you make no promises now. But if you neglect yourselves and are not willing to live following step by step, as it were, in the path marked out by our present and past discussions, you will accomplish nothing, no matter how much or how eagerly you promise at present. Well, we certainly try hard to do as you say, he replied. But how shall we bury you? Oh, however you please, he replied. If you can catch me and I do not get away from you. And he laughed gently and looking towards us said, I cannot persuade Crito, my friends, that the Socrates who is now conversing and arranging the details of his argument is really I. He thinks I am the one whom he will presently see as a corpse, and he asks how to bury me. And though I have been saying at great length that after I drink the poison I shall no longer be with you, but shall go away to the joys of the blessed, you know of, he seems to think that was idle talk uttered to encourage you and myself. So, he said, give security for me to Crito, the opposite of that which he gave the judges at my trial, for he gave security that I would remain, but you must give security that I shall not remain when I die, but shall go away, so that Crito may bear it more easily, and may not be troubled when he sees my body being burned or buried, or think I am undergoing terrible treatment, and may not say at the funeral that he is laying out Socrates, or following him to the grave, or burying him. For, dear Crito, you may be sure that such wrong words are not only undesirable in themselves, but they infect the soul with evil. No, you must be of good courage and say that you bury my body and bury it as you think best and as seems as to you most fitting. When he had said this, he got up and went into another room to bathe. Crito followed him, but told us to wait. So we waited talking over with each other and discussing the discourse we had heard, and then speaking of the great misfortune that had befallen us, for we felt that he was like a father to us, and that when bereft of him we should pass the rest of our lives as orphans. And when he had bathed and his children had been brought to him, for he had two little sons and one big one, and the women of the family had come, he talked with them in Crito's presence and gave them such directions as he wished. Then he told the women to go away, and he came to us. 
and it was now nearly sunset, for he had spent a long time within, and he came and sat down fresh from the bath. After that not much was said, and the servant of the eleven came and stood beside him and said, Socrates, I shall not find fault with you, as I do with others, for being angry and cursing me, when at the behest of the authorities I tell them to drink the poison. No, I have found you in all this time, in every way, the noblest and gentlest and best man who has ever come here, and now I know your anger is directed against others, not against me, for you know who are to blame. Now, for you know the message I come to bring you. Farewell, and try to bear what you must as easily as you can. And he burst into tears and turned and went away, and Socrates looked up at him and said, Fare you well too, I will do as you say. And then he said to us, How charming the man is. Ever since I have been here he has been coming to see me and talking with me from time to time, and has been the best of men, and now how nobly he weeps for me. But come, Crito, let us obey him, and let someone bring the poison if it is ready, and if not, let the man prepare it. And Crito said, But I think, Socrates, the sun is still upon the mountains and has not yet set, and I know that others have taken the poison very late after the order has come to them, and in the meantime have eaten and drunk, and some of them have enjoyed the society of those whom they loved. Do not hurry, there is still time. And Socrates said, Crito, those whom you mention are right in doing as they do, for they think they gain by it, and I shall be right in not doing as they do, for I think I should gain nothing by taking the poison a little later. I should only make myself ridiculous in my own eyes if I clung on to life and spared it, when there is no more profit in it. Come, he said, do as I ask and do not refuse. Thereupon Crito nodded to the boy who was standing near. The boy went out and stayed a long time, then came back with a man who was to administer the poison, which he brought with him in a cup ready for use. And when Socrates saw him, he said, Well, my good man, you know what about these things. What must I do? Nothing, he replied, except drink the poison and walk about till your legs feel heavy, then lie down, and the poison will take effect of itself. At the same time, he held out the cup to Socrates. He took it, and very gently, Icacrates, without trembling or changing colour or expression, but looking up at the man with wide open eyes, as was his custom, said, What do you say about pouring a libation to some deity from this cup? May I, or not? Socrates, said he, we prepare only as much as we think is enough. I understand, said Socrates, but I may and must pray to the gods that my departure hence be fortunate one, so I offer this prayer, and may it be granted. With these words he raised the cup to his lips and very cheerfully and quietly drained it. Up to that time most of us had been able to restrain our tears fairly well, but when we watched him drinking and saw that he had drunk the poison, we could do so now no longer. But in spite of myself my tears rolled down in floods, so that I wrapped my face in my cloak and wept for myself, for it was not for him that I wept, but for my own misfortune in being deprived of such a friend. Crito had got up and gone away before even I did, because he could not restrain his tears. But Apollodorus, who had been weeping all the time before, then wailed aloud in his grief and made us all break down, except Socrates himself. But he said, What conduct is this, you strange men? I sent the women away chiefly for this very reason, that they may not behave in this absurd way, for I have heard that it is best to die in silence. Keep quiet and be brave. Then we were ashamed and controlled our tears. 
He walked about, and when he said his legs were heavy, lay down on his back, for such was the advice of the attendant. The man who had administered the poison laid his hands on him, and after a while examined his feet and legs, then pinched his foot hard and asked if he felt it. He said no. Then after that his thighs, and passing upwards in this way, he showed us that he was growing cold and rigid. And again he touched him and said that when it reached his heart he would be gone. The chill had now reached the region about the groin, and uncovering his face which had been covered, he said, and these were his last words, Crito, we owe a cock to Ascupilus, pay it and do not neglect it. That, said Crito, shall be done, but see if you have anything else to say. To this question he made no reply, but after a little while he moved. The attendant uncovered him, his eyes were fixed, and Cretos, when he saw it, closed his mouth and eyes. Such was the end, Echecrates, of our friend, who was, as we may say, of all those of his time who we have known, the best and wisest and most righteous man. Well, we move on 2,000 years now for the death of George IV in 1830. This is written by Mrs Arbutnot over a series of dates from late April to mid-July. The king goes on much the same. The doctors say he is a little better, but I think Halford is persuaded he will die. He gets black in the face and his pulse alters when he has had these attacks on his breath, which they think shows something wrong about the heart. They took him out airing ten days ago, and when he got to the lodge he was so bad they were frightful to death and thought he would die. They gave him quantities of brandy, and he rallied so completely that he got into his carriage and drove twenty miles. His mode of living is really beyond belief. One day last week, at the hour of the servants' dinner, he called the page in and said, Now you are going to dinner. Go downstairs and cut me off just such a piece of beef as you would like to have yourself. Cut from the part you would like best yourself, and bring it up. The page accordingly went and fetched him an enormous quantity of roast beef, all of which he ate, and then slept for five hours. One night he drank two glasses of hot ale and toast, three glasses of claret, some strawberries and a glass of brandy. Last night they gave him some physic, and after it he drank three glasses of port wine and a glass of brandy. No wonder he is likely to die, but they say he will have all these things and nobody can prevent him. I dare say the wine would not hurt him, for with the evil which all the royal family have, it is necessary, I believe, to have a great deal of high food. But the mixture of ale and strawberries is enough to kill a horse. I went yesterday to Windsor, to the funeral of the late king. I went in the morning with Lady Georgiana Fane to St Andrew Barnard's room in the castle. He and Lord Fife went with us to see the lying in state. It was in one of the old state rooms in the castle. The coffin was very fine and a most enormous size. They were very near having a frightful accident, for when the body was in the leaden coffin, the lead was observed to have bulged very considerably, and in fact was in great danger of bursting. They were obliged to puncture the lead, to let out the air, and then to fresh cover it with lead. Rather an unpleasant operation, I should think, but the embalming must have been very badly done. We started with Gladstone's last days as Prime Minister and now we move on to 1974 for another report from the Daily Telegraph, this time the end of Prime Minister Edward Heath. These reports are from early February to 
early March. February the 6th, 1974. An all-out strike starting at midnight on Saturday was called yesterday by a unanimous decision of the executive of the National Union of Mine Workers, who rejected an appeal by Mr Whitelaw, Employment Secretary, for last-minute talks. During bitter exchanges in the Commons, Mr Heath said the NUM had never been prepared to negotiate. He referred to the prices and incomes policy and added, it is now to our infinite regret that the miners have not accepted the will of Parliament. His remarks suggested to many that the Prime Minister must be thinking very seriously of taking the issue to the electors so that the will of Parliament can be endorsed. February the 8th, H. Boyne, political correspondent, writes, Parliament will be dissolved today for a general election on February the 28th in three weeks' time. Mr Heath, who appealed yesterday to the miners to suspend their all-out strike for the period of the campaign, indicated in a ministerial broadcast last night the theme on which the Conservative Party will fight it. Firm action for a fair Britain. Mr Heath gave his answer to the question, what will an election prove? He argued that it will give you, the people, the chance to elect a government which will be in a far stronger position to reach a settlement with the miners, which safeguards your interests as well as theirs. Do you want Parliament and the elected government to continue to fight strenuously against inflation? Or do you want them to abandon the struggle against rising prices under pressure from one particular powerful group of workers? February the 9th. As Parliament was dissolved yesterday to mark the start of the general election campaign, the miners' executive overwhelmingly rebuffed Mr Heath's truce appeal and voted 20 to 6 in favour of going ahead with their strike from midnight tonight. March the 2nd. The Prime Minister saw the Queen at Buckingham Palace last night to discuss the stalemate outcome of a general election which has produced one of the gravest political crises Britain has ever known. The Labour Party is expected to have beaten the Conservatives by a margin of four seats, but neither party will have an absolute majority. It is clear that Mr Heath has not so far tendered his resignation to the Queen and hopes to avoid any necessity to do so. As Prime Minister, he will be within his constitutional rights to spend the weekend or possibly longer testing the likelihood of support for a minority Conservative government under his leadership. March the 5th, 1974. Edward Heath last night bowed to the inevitable and made way for Harold Wilson. Seven minutes after the Queen's acceptance of Mr Heath's resignation as Prime Minister had been announced from Buckingham Palace, Mr Wilson was there, ready to accept her invitation to form a government. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>